So this is the 200th episode of Psychology in Seattle. 200 episodes. Wow. It's just me today. I thought I would just talk about some random things about the podcast and where we've been and where I see things going. But first, I just want to thank everyone out there for listening and for contacting us. It's been fun to hear from you. Thanks for all the support. Uh, Along those lines, please tell other people. There are a lot of listeners out there that are in graduate training programs or who are, among others, who like podcasts and will tell those other people and turn them on to it. So if you do that, that's, that's always the best way our podcast can become more popular. Not that I believe the podcast will ever become hugely popular because it's sort of a niche topic. So again, just thanks a lot for listening. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be doing this. It would be pointless to, well, actually, uh, let me correct that. We might actually be doing it even if my mom was the only one listening, honestly, because we have so much fun. I have so much fun. So I don't know if that's exactly true. But anyway, thanks for listening. And it's always nice to know that you're out there. The first thing I wanted to talk about is where my career has gone. Some people ask me about where my career is going and where it's been. And I just thought it'd be good in this episode to kind of review that and uh, talk about what's going to happen in the future. I, in my mid-20s, suddenly decided to become a therapist after never considering that as an option. So at the age of 24, I applied to graduate school to a master's program at Antioch University in Seattle. And within a year, I was in school. And then a year later, I was an intern. And a year after that, I graduated and I became a therapist. I also was asked by my university to start teaching directly after graduation, which was quite an honor, but was also terrifying. I had to take beta blockers to cope with the anxiety, and that didn't even really work that well. I was just absolutely terrified, and and I would worry about it all week long, and then I would teach, and then I would feel relief. And then the next day, the anxiety would begin again. And this really went on for a number of years. But I really loved teaching. I mean, for the most part, it was really great. But the stress of it and the stress of that one student that just really challenges you, you know, as any teachers out there will know that when you have a difficult student, it becomes, it it really degrades your job satisfaction. And that would happen occasionally. Every once in a while, like every year, there'd be one student and I'm not talking about a student that's just hard to teach. I'm talking about a student that was like openly hostile towards professors. And sometimes you just really wonder if it's all worth it. And so many times I would consider quitting teaching, and I did in the end. And then the university sucked me back in, and I started teaching again. And then I quit again, and then they sucked me back in again in 2009. And I actually, I think it was the 50th episode, if I remember right, in 2009 of our podcast here in which I started teaching full-time at at Antioch again. My phone is not silenced. That's not very good. Yeah, if anyone remembers that episode, we had a party, and we were all standing there, and I was in my regalia that professors wear um, during ceremonies. And I've been working at Antioch full-time ever since, and I've really enjoyed it. I've come to cope with the anxiety much better. And in in fact, I don't take beta blockers anymore, for instance, and I feel a lot more comfortable as, as an instructor. Plus, I feel a lot more supported by my colleagues. 
And when there is a difficult student, I know that they have my back. That's a that's an important thing, I think, among professors is they have to support each other because when they're isolated and alone and dealing with that, you know, one out of a thousand students that's that's difficult, it could be really distressing unless you have support from your colleagues. And at Antioch, where I work, the professors are all really great and support each other and get, you know, give each other the benefit of the doubt. And it just feels really warm, like a family. In fact, my cousin actually is a professor there, so it kind of is a family. <laughs> but so after I graduated in 97, I was mainly a clinician and I would also teach occasionally, um, like one class a quarter kind of a thing. And then, uh, again, off and on with the teaching, but always a clinician, full-time, private practice for the most part. And then in 2009, I became full-time as a professor, and my practice went to part-time. And I was overloaded with work and decided to not do the podcast for a while. I didn't actually know if I'd pick it up again, but, but I did. And, and I've been, you know, sort of doing it when I get a chance in between all the various things that I do. And also, upon being full-time faculty at Antioch, one of the things that my boss and my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss pressured me to do was to get my doctorate because I, at that point, was teaching under my master's. And even though I love to learn and even though I'm, a, I'm an instructor, I actually do not enjoy being a student all that much. I, I think that's pretty normal for anybody. I mean, every once in a while, I come across someone that just loves being a student. And up until, you know, 2009, I had this attitude of trying to avoid school because of the pressure and the amount of time it takes. So when they started pressuring me to get my doctorate, I at first was pushing back and I, I was saying, look, you either want me or you don't. And if you, if you want to fire me and get someone who has a doctorate, it's cool with me. I'll just go back to private practice. I, I really love working with my clients and I love teaching too, but you know, I don't think it's worth it to, to go all the way back and get my doctorate. But then over time, my boss, Paul, Paul David, he's been on the podcast before. He's a mentor of mine, a very close person in my life. And he has a way of convincing me to do things when I don't always want to. Um, he, he, he's convinced me to do all sorts. He's the person main, he's the main person who keeps sucking me back in to teaching at Antioch. And I, and I thank him so much for that. If he didn't push me, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I, I owe him so much. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much that I, I owe him in terms of my career. Incidentally, he, he's the chair of the couple and family therapy program, the marriage and family therapy program at, at Antioch. And he wants me to take over. He wants me to be chair soon. So I will uh, become chair of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program soon, which will be very weird because Paul, my boss and mentor, will now at that point become, he will work under me. <laughs> I'll be his boss. I'll be the chair and he'll be just regular core faculty. So that will be odd. So he did convince me to get my doctorate. And I looked around at different programs and ultimately decided to go to Antioch where I teach for a number of reasons. One is, is I thought the program would be good and I also would get a massive discount, like, you know, half off. And when you're talking about a doctorate uh, degree, it can cost upwards of $130,000. And so when you get half off, that's quite a lot of money that you're saving. And so 
uh, that was a major incentive as well. Plus, I live right across the street from the university in downtown Seattle. And so it was nice for that reason, too, because, you know, I, I not only, you know, work there, but I would also go to school there and I wouldn't have to commute and park and all this kind of stuff. So there are a lot of reasons why I chose to get my doctorate at the place where I work. Now, there were some issues about how it would feel to actually teach at a place and actually also be going to school there. But, you know, I'm, I'm cool with role changes. I don't mind being a learner. I don't mind being a teacher. It was fine. So I started that four years ago, and I thought, well, I'm working full-time as a professor, and I have a you know private practice on the side. So I'm not going to have much time for this doctorate. So I figured out you know how, mon- how many classes I was going to take a quarter, and I did all the math, and it looked like I w- it was going to take about seven or eight years for me to finish the doctorate. Because normally, if you go full time, it's five years, and so and that's full time. That's like working really hard. And so I thought, well, it's probably going to be about seven or eight years because I'll string it out a little longer. And I think eight years is the maximum time anyway. But so I started, and it was you know slow going at first because I was just trying to get used to going back to school again after not being in school for 15 years ish. See how long was it? It was uh, well 12, 12 years. But pretty quickly, my mild OCD kicked in, and I started working really hard and started signing up for more classes. I started you know, going three-quarters time, and then I started going full-time, and then I started going more than full-time. So not only was I teaching full-time and having a practice, and I was in a band, and I had the podcast, but I was also going to more than full-time school along with doing various internships and such that I had to do. Uh, along with clinical oral exams and uh, dissertation and all that stuff. So it was quite busy. And at some point, my brain started to shut down. (laughs) I remember there was this one quarter where my brain just was not working. I could feel it in my head. It it almost felt like I was dissociating to some extent. I mean, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but I I remember just my brain was just not working. I, I would wake up in the morning... And my day would be filled, every hour would be filled with some massive task. There was no break. I didn't have a social life. I, you know, was not getting enough sleep. And, um, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like I was working in a coal mine or something. You know, we're just talking about sitting down and talking to clients and teaching and studying. It's not like, it's not like physical labor or something. But it was a lot of thinking and a lot of talking and a lot of processing, and so my brain was not doing so well at a certain point. But um, I tried to take good care of myself, and I really tried to be efficient with my self-care. Instead of watching TV for five hours, um, incidentally, I, got, I didn't even have a TV at this point, and I still don't. Got just totally got rid of my TV. Stopped watching sports. I would not go to certain social functions that I thought were just not... Uh, possible for me to go to. There were tasks at work that I turned down and said, look, you just can't depend on me for that just now. I'll definitely get on that once I graduate, but not now. So I had to do a lot of that. But um, again, as as I my mild OCD started to kick in, I started actually trying to graduate as soon as possible. And I started thinking, hey, I might be able to do this in five years, not seven or eight. I might be able to do this in five years. And then I started really 
putting everything together like a Tetris puzzle. And I thought, you know what? I might be able to do this in four years. Because par- part of the uh, process of getting a doctorate is getting, an in- is getting a clinical internship. And you have to get a lot of internships during your doctorate, like you know, four different internships. But the main internship is the one at the end. And I know a lot of people in Seattle. So I could kind of pick and choose where I wanted to do my internship. I didn't really have to apply, so to speak. Uh, since I've been you know, working in the business for a long time and been a professor, I know a lot of people. And so I sort of networked in that way well in advance and set up an internship that really worked for me. Again, it was within walking distance of my house. In, in fact, uh, every day I would go to my internship, I would walk right underneath the Space Needle, like directly underneath the Space Needle uh, to the uh, internship. I did that in four years, and, and that all ends in the, in the next couple of weeks. So at the 200th episode, it coincides with the end of my doctorate, which is quite a nice feeling. For those of you in Seattle that know, uh, on my last day of school, I went to Canlis, the restaurant. I've never been there, the super fancy old school restaurant in Seattle that overlooks Lake Union. Uh, I've driven by it a million times, but never went in and um, decided to go there, and it was it was really great. They served a uh, – there's this um, dish that they had right when you first get there that I think everybody gets, and it's this – I don't know how to describe it, but it's like like there are three little hors d'oeuvres served on lucite pedestals. <laughs> so if you can imagine just like three little pedestals that you can see through and then one hors d'oeuvre on each on the top of each pedestal, one of which was a gourmet tater tot pre-dipped. So it already had sauce on the on the little pedestal and the little tater tot was stuck in it. And this was no normal tater tot. This was like a very specialized tater tot. But anyway, so um, the other thing about Canlis was that, that I'll just say, is that they had a waiter for every, for, they had a different waiter for every single thing. You know, you get courses, so it's like a seven course meal. And each course is brought out by a different waiter. And they take your silverware each time. So the silverware has to be brought, you know, to coincide with the next course. And the silverware was also brought by a different waiter. Your water was, you know, given by a different waiter. Your drinks were a different waiter. Um, there was just, I think we had like 20 different waiters, uh, actually. So it was, it was always funny. It's like, wait, who's our waiter? So yeah, I will now be officially a doctor. And I want to ask you, the listeners, what you guys think about the following thing. I want to have kind of a, a name <laughs> for myself, you know, like Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura or Dr. Drew or Dr. Oz or Dr. Ruth. What should my name be? I'm in the media, sort of like them. What, what should my name be? Should it be Dr. Kirk? Should it be Dr. Honda? Should it be Dr. Kirk Honda? Should it be Doc Honda? Doc Kirk? I don't know. Um, let me know. My middle name is Joseph. Sometimes people call me Kirk Joe, Dr. Kirk Joe. That sounds ridiculous. So let me know. I've been asking people, and I have to say I get split answers between Dr. Kirk and Dr. Honda. Some people say Dr. Kirk sounds better. Some people think Dr. Honda sounds funny because it's like, well, that's a car, so it sounds funny. Some people think Dr. Honda sounds more professional, and Dr. Kirk sounds like some kind of ridiculous name. So I don't know. 
uh, someone last night said Captain Kirk, which of course makes no sense because I'm not a captain. So let me know. Email me at contact at psychologyandseattle.com or go to our Facebook page and comment there. Or you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the Contact Us page and fill out the form and send us a message. Let me know. Because, you know, once I lock that down, I can't change it. Just joking. I can always change it because no one really knows me. But, I, you know, you never, you know, if, if I'm ever on TV and because occasionally I get interviewed, I think it'd be nice to have, a, you know, a name for myself. So as I graduate, I am suddenly faced with having a lot of free time back in my life because my doctorate took probably 40 to 50 hours a week, at least. And suddenly I'm going to get all that free time. It's just all going to be free time. And I'm, and I'm not going to know what to do with it, because for the past four years during my doctorate training, I, I have been refusing all sorts of social events and all sorts of, you know, the little things in life, like buying new socks, for instance, <laughs> I, on my to-do list. I have a very long to-do list that keeps getting longer and longer. And one of the things that is on there is buying new socks. And it, there was always something that would be a higher priority, like, oh, you, a paper is due tomorrow, or you have to give a presentation, or da-da-da. So I, I would say, well, the socks have got to wait. Well, I'm now buying new socks. Um, so getting my doctorate really pleases my university because universities love to have professors with doctorates and do not prefer instructors with only masters, which I think is a little bit ridiculous because having a doctorate does not necessarily make you a better teacher. In fact, I would say it almost has nothing to do with being a good teacher. Many of the instructors at Antioch, including myself when I had a master's, get higher satisfaction ratings from the students than the people with the doctorates. I mean, I just, I, I do a lot of research on the numbers in terms of student satisfaction because I'm very interested in, in that. And I can tell you that for sure. In fact, I would tell you that the highest rated professors are actually master's level people. So it's a little funny that universities will only hire people with doctorates. But our culture is such that if you don't have a doctorate, you're not taken as seriously, which I, I think is an arbitrary, ridiculous notion. I think requiring your instructors to be competent in teaching is definitely something that every university should do. But to just link competence with doctorate is short-sighted. It's also a marketing thing, you know, when, when you have your website and you scroll, scroll through all the different professors and they all have doctorates, it, it presumably looks better to the public. But I don't know if people necessarily care that much. People at Antioch never cared that I had a master's, at least they never said that they cared. So anyway, what's going to happen in the future? Well, I don't know. I have a lot of dreams for the podcast. Again, I've been developing this really long list of this really long to do list of things to do for the podcast, because I just didn't have time for it. But the first thing I should mention is that a TV producer actually just contacted me and Umberto and asked us if we wanted to host a TV show about happiness. And she was uh, very excited about involving us in this. She found us on the internet and said we'd be perfect to host uh, this show that, that they've already decided that they're definitely going to develop. But I know enough about the showbiz industry to know that 
the likelihood of this actually panning out into something real is pretty slim. Uh, so I'm just sort of taking it with a grain of salt. We're, we're entertaining the idea, but, but there are a lot of barriers, potential barriers to, to this actually happening. For instance, you know, what if they say, well, you have to live in LA or you have to be in LA for three months or something to shoot it. Well, I, I can't move from Seattle. My practice is here. My, my job is here. I, I can't, I can't just move. What if they require me to work 50 hours a week? And, you know, I, I can't do that. I like my job. I, you know, I don't want to do that. What if they don't pay me enough? What if the TV show is ridiculous? What if they have all sorts of unsupported claims that they promote on the show and they want me to sign off on that? I can absolutely see that happening. And, and I, you know, would like to think that I have integrity and wouldn't, wouldn't go along with that. And, and I've been courted before by another TV producer to develop a different TV show. I can't remember what that one was about. But, you know, it's kind of fun to, to think about. I, I don't want to be, come across, I don't want to make it seem as though I'm this pessimist. I guess I'm just a realist. But it's fun to imagine, you know, having a TV show, a little TV show that some people watch. You know, it's the American dream, right? Uh, to, to, to have your own TV show, to be like the Kardashians. Um, so where do I see the future of the podcast going? Well, I, I imagine um, I want to potentially have merchandise, which I don't even know what that would be. But I'm thinking T-shirts, maybe stickers. <laughs> um, we already technically do. We already do sort of have merchandise in that you can buy our albums, our music albums, on Spotify or Amazon or iTunes or whatever. Well, you can't buy it on Spotify, but you can listen to it on Spotify. And those band names are Bread Knife Incident, and the other band name is Missionary. The band that me and Umberto were in where it was called missionary and the band that I was in was called bread knife incident. The missionary band is not a religious band, uh, even though some people think that and also Antioch university where I went to school and where I teach is also not a religious university, even though people think that um, other things that I was thinking about doing was holding bigger events. Uh, we had a podcast party at the end of last quarter, which was really fun. And I thought, hmm, maybe we should do this more often, which we are. We're going to have a podcast party, I think, next week. And I was thinking about having bigger events and inviting more locals or people who want to travel to have a live taping of the podcast somewhere in Seattle or something. So let me know if you're into that. Some people have already expressed interest in doing something like that. I don't know how to pull that off, honestly, but you know, now that I have all this time, maybe I'll figure that out. Another thing I really want to do is to develop a continuing education program. Um, for those of you who are professionals out there, you'll know about this, but for those of you who aren't, clinicians have a requirement. If they want to keep their license, the state will require them to get a certain amount of continuing education. So they have to take classes. And often these classes cost money. So their conferences or their online courses or something. And I know a lot of you are professionals and need this requirement to be fulfilled. And since you're listening to this podcast, I thought, what a wonderful thing it could be if you could just count this as continuing education. So I would make episodes that were geared toward a specific topic and then you would go to the website, I think. I'm, I'm still looking into the details on this, but I think you would go to the website and you would fill out a little quiz proving that you listened to the 
to the episode and then you could, then you would get a certificate in the mail and it would, uh, mean that you got an hour or two of continuing ed. And so the other thing that I was thinking about doing was developing this sort of package of, ep- of mini episodes versus long episodes thing. Uh, it's sort of hard. I don't even know how to describe it, but essentially what I want to do is I want to research a particular topic like self-disclosure or antisocial personality disorder or something and really do a lot of research, a, a pretty lengthy literature review and actually write up some summary of, of all of the literature. And then I would post that on my website for people to, to see. And then once I have that written up, then I would make a long form episode the way that I often do, like now where I'm just talking into a microphone or Umberto's there and we're going back and forth about a particular topic. And then I would do a third thing where I would make a short video episode. And the video episode would be like, I don't know if you guys know of, I think it's Minute Physics, where there's it's a, it's a YouTube series where this guy uses this whiteboard and, and he talks about physics and he draws on this whiteboard um, and animates it. Or like, um, oh, what's that one? There's a whole bunch of them. Hank, Hank and someone. Anyway, I can't remember their names. But there's a lot of popular science YouTube channels that produce some pretty fantastic videos that I watch all the time. But there really isn't anything on psychology out there. And so I thought, well, what if I just did like five-minute bits on, you know, like like antisocial personality disorder as an example and have animation and have, yeah, I don't know, just have it be exciting and not just a lecture, not just a talking head, but actually have it be engaging and interesting. And so I would do all the th- all three of those things because sometimes I do all that anyway, but I just don't package it like that. So, but you know, since I'll have free time, I can really concentrate on a topic, and 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 do all three of those things. So I, I don't know. Um, I, again, some people might say, "Why would you do all this if you don't make any money off of it?" And I would say, I have no idea. <laughs> I just like it. It's fun. It's creative. It's fun to give to society in some way. So that's that's why I'm doing it. Uh, maybe the continuing ed thing will produce some money. I mean, people donate sometimes, but not nearly enough to actually make it worth it. I mean, the, the amount of money I make in one hour of therapy dwarfs the amount of donations I get in a month, you know. So it's it's not a thing I do for money, but but it's, it's, it's fun. It's great. Um, and I was also thinking about integrating the podcast more with teaching. So far, I only assign maybe one or two episodes to my students, but I thought it would be a good synergy to actually start making episodes that were that would be appeal to the general audience, but also would be applicable to my students that I work with. So you know, I could just refer them to different episodes instead of having to go back over a whole other topic, a topic you know, all over again with them. Some people have approached me and said, you know what, you should develop your own online school for counseling. And that just seems really daunting and terrible to me. Um, So I I don't think I would ever do that. But I don't know, sometimes I think about that. But that just seems like 
a huge pain in the butt. I mean, the amount of administrative sort of things you'd have to do and marketing and ugh, that just sounds terrible. Um, so those are some of the ideas. If you have any ideas for the future of the podcast, please let me know. If you have an expertise that you would like to volunteer, help out, like, I don't know, maybe you're a graphic designer or you know about continuing it or I don't know. Actually, one one thing I was thinking about doing was not only me providing the, the continuing ed, but on the website actually having other people contribute continuing ed. So they would record their own little bits. It would go on the on the website. Um, I don't know how the money would work, but I don't know. It just seems like we could package a lot of things together with a lot of people. So if you have ideas along those lines, let me know. Um so I thought I would just go back over how you can support us because I, I feel like we don't talk about it that often. So if if you'd like to support the show, there are a number of different things you can do. And if you could do a number of these, it would really be great, honestly. I, I, I'm the sort of guy that will respond to every email. I read every comment. Uh, we don't get enough so that I can't read them all. Do you know what I mean? And I am very curious about what people have to say. So, so, uh, if you, if you do anything, we will notice. So, so, uh, know that. So the things you can do are you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and just tool around on the website. You can go there and donate. That's, that's really uh, the most impactful action you can do. You can send us a message at contact at psychologyandstyle.com or go to the website and send us a message through what, through the website. You can check out our links. Um, all of our episodes are on the website. You can support us, as I said before, by telling friends, particularly if they're in the field. You can like us on Facebook. That'd be nice. I feel like there aren't enough people liking us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. Again, there's not a lot of people following us on Twitter. I don't know how to use Twitter yet. Uh, at this point, I'm only posting every now and then, and so I don't know. I just I don't. I'm not connected to the internet enough to really know how to use Twitter. I feel like it's just a it's just a flood of tweets that I, I just don't have time to read. But but anyway, you can follow us on Twitter. It's always nice to get get followers and and the few tweets that I send out. You can you can check out. You can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, as I'm guessing many of you do. You can review us on iTunes. Uh, a while back, iTunes, for whatever for whatever reason, just dropped our feed, and we had to reapply. We never found out why they dropped it. And so all of our comments got, all of our reviews on iTunes got erased. And I just looked yesterday, and there's three reviews, which is really nice of those people, but um, there used to be a lot more. So it'd be great if you could go on iTunes and review us. You can subscribe and comment on YouTube. It's always nice when people publicly publicly say interesting and nice things on YouTube because a lot of people on YouTube are terrible human beings. And the last thing you can do, as I said before, is you can go on iTunes or Amazon or wherever you buy your music and actually buy some of our music, Bread Knife Incident or Missionary. So those are you know the various ways that you can support the show. The, the, but the, really the main thing you could do if, if you did anything is to just email us and tell us what you think. Um, it's, it's always great. I just got an email today from someone 
who had a reaction to the immigrant advocacy episode that I posted not long ago. And it's just nice to hear, you know, people's thoughts. So I thought I would, at the end here, I thought I would just review the episodes that we've made. So I made a hundredth episode. And if you go to that episode, that's in 2012. I talk about the history of the podcast and a lot of that sort of stuff. So I'm not going to go back over that. But so the episodes since the hundredth episode, uh, let's see, I did one on ethics. I did one on Milton Erickson. That episode gets a lot of negative emails. People, I did not know this. Every once in a while, I say something on the podcast and have no idea that I was going to piss off a whole group of people. And out there, I had no idea, but there's this whole group of people that are very sensitive about criticizing Milton Erickson. And if and it's just horrible, some of the things that people on YouTube say to me. So it, uh, that was interesting. Uh, also, in 2012, made an, an episode on drama therapy. That was fun with some students at Antioch and with a colleague of mine, Bobby, who is a teacher at Antioch. She teaches drama therapy. We did an episode on female orgasm. I remember that. That was, that was quite fun. We did an episode on cognitive therapy. Oh, that was when I was on the radio. A local radio host had me on his show, and he wanted to talk about cognitive therapy. My boss, Paul David, came on the podcast for the first time and talked about monogamy. Or was it the first time he was on? I think it was. Anyway, he talked about monogamy and evolutionary psychology. That was fun. We had an episode on spirituality and psychotherapy. I had an episode on the IF project, IF-I-F project. I had on the show as guests a police officer and a former convict they talked about this project in which they ask inmates, women inmates, to ask a question. I can't remember the exact question, but it's something like, if someone was to tell you something before you committed the crimes that you did before you got in prison, what's something that would have been helpful that you would have heard? And so these inmates will answer these questions and write something out. And then the IF project, this police officer, compiles all of them and then has events where they have at-risk youth uh, come and read these and get connected with these inmates as a way of trying to dissuade these at-risk youth from taking a similar path. It's, it's quite an amazing project, but anyway, you can listen to that episode if you haven't already. We did an episode on infidelity. We did an episode on, I think that was with Paul, too. I reviewed the movie Hope Springs, and uh, that was fun to talk about. We did an episode on music therapy. I had a friend come on the podcast. She's a music therapist, and she demonstrated what music therapy was all about. I reviewed the movie Charlie Bar Bartlett. Uh, I also reviewed the movie Mumford. So these are all movies that have therapists in them. I did an episode on why we watch disasters. I, I remember this was around Hurricane Sandy time. And again, a, a different radio host had me on their show. And so I recorded that and talked about um, why, you know, the, the, the radio host was asking me, why do, why are people so fascinated with death and destruction? You know, why do we love watching the news and seeing death and destruction on TV? And so we talked about that. Had an episode on type A personality, 
collaborative collaborative divorce. I had my friend Joe Schaub come on. He's a lawyer and a therapist, and he talked about collaborative divorce. Had an episode on rites of passage. Paul Abadili came on and talked about his uh, program in which he takes people out into the woods and they kind of go on a vision quest. Teenagers uh, many times will do this and how profound it is for these people to do that. Had an episode on the Sandy Hook shooting, the shooting in Connecticut with, you know, Adam Lanza when he killed all those people. I believe that was also an episode in which I was on the radio and I just um, took that audio and made a podcast out of it. Had an episode on duty to warn, uh, another one on holiday stress. Uh, in that episode, I was on TV. I remember that was kind of a funny thing. This this one day I get this call or email or something. I think it was a telephone call. This TV news producer says, can you be on TV today? Because it was Christmas Eve, actually. And actually, I host Christmas Eve at my house. You know, All my friends and family come to my house for Christmas Eve. And so you know, I'm getting all the food ready and I'm getting cleaning and doing all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, they're like, would you like to be on on the news to talk about how to deal with holiday stress. So, you know, sort of ironic. And um, it's it's always funny to, to be on the news because when they want you to be that sort of expert speaker, what they do is, you know, they, they sit you down, they get you all lit up well, and, you know, they, they coach you, and then they talk with you. For, they talked with me for over an hour. And in the end, they used probably 15 seconds of what I said. Actually, 15 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> So either I say only 15 seconds of worthwhile things in an hour, or I don't know, I don't know, or they just didn't know what sort of questions to ask me, or I don't know. But anyway, so that was uh, interesting. And it's also interesting because I live in the area of Seattle where a lot of the news stations are headquartered. I'm, I'm just a couple blocks away from one of the main TV channels, Channel 4, and, and all the other TV channels are right around here. And anyway, if anyone knows KEXP, it's the radio station. It's the, I don't know what you'd call it, like the alternative, the major alternative radio station. And people listen to it all around the world. And it's just a block away as well. But anyway, so uh, 2013 had an episode on Jungian psychology. I had my friend and colleague, Ann Blake, on the show to talk about Jungian psychology. I had an episode on immigrant parents and advocacy for immigrant parents had an episode on spanking fetish. That was fun. Had an episode titled Stupid Shit Therapists Shouldn't Do. So that episode was about how therapists do stupid things and how they shouldn't do it. Had another episode on reviewing the book A General Theory of Love. That was um, interesting to read, that book. Had an episode on sexual attraction. Let's see, I think this was another episode in which I was on another radio show and I just use that audio to as the basis for that episode. I uh, had two episodes on the Myers-Briggs. That was, again, with Ann Blake, my colleague and friend. Then we had an episode on yoga therapy. That was fun. We had our friend Janice come down and demonstrate what yoga therapy was on Umberto. That was good. Did an episode on reviewing the film Equus. Equus. The movie it was actually it's actually a play as well or originally a play. I get a lot of emails from people about that. I think there's again a lot of people that are really into that play and that movie Equus. 
I get a lot of interesting emails. Did an episode on Dungeons and Dragons therapy. Had the two students from Antioch, Adam and, and Adam. They're, they're both named Adam. And they were talking about how they use Dungeons and Dragons to help kids learn how to socialize, which is exciting. They're still doing that program. Another episode on negative therapeutic reaction, a Freudian term. Countertransference did an episode on that, another Freudian term. Did an episode on ecological systems theory and child development. Episode on Facebook stalking, you know, people who stalk people on Facebook. Another episode on oppositional defiant disorder and emotional parenting. Oh, and then I did a long series of episodes on evolutionary psychology. I think I did six different episodes. I get a lot of emails about that too. In fact, someone locally, a writer, wants to come on the podcast and ask me a bunch of questions about evolutionary psychology. So I think we've scheduled that. So you can look forward to that, I think in December. Reviewed the movie Short Term 12. If you haven't seen Short Term 12, I highly recommend it. It's a movie about a group home for kids did an episode on video game violence. Again, this was another radio podcast in which a radio host, Andrew Walsh, interviewed me on his show, and we talked about video game violence. An episode on psychopharmacology. I had my friend and colleague, Dr. Grubbs, come on the podcast and talk about psychopharmacology. Uh, we talked about dating. I had an episode about marijuana. We had a friend and colleague come on the show and talk about her book called The Open Relationship Handbook, Kate Stewart. Uh, did an episode with my friend and colleague, Rebecca Bloom, about her art therapy workbook called Square the Circle. Did podcasts on whether or not I should be a therapist. I think uh, a listener wrote in and asked if she should be a therapist. She didn't know if she was fit to be a therapist, and so I answered her questions. Um, had my friend and colleague come on the podcast and talk about misdiagnosing gifted children and adults. So it was an episode about gifted children. That was my friend, Lisa Erickson. And that brings us to 2014. Berto and I talked about the film American Psycho. I had three episodes in which I interviewed my students in my family of origin class. That was illuminating. Uh, I had a listener come on the podcast in... Uh, March of 2014 and interview me about his various questions that he had. Uh, he wanted to, he wants to go into psychology and counseling, and so he had a bunch of questions. We had an episode about pornography. Had some guests on the show to talk about that. Another episode about infidelity. Had an episode about conscious uncoupling and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, I had a friend and colleague come on the show and talk about internal family systems. That was illuminating to me. Uh, we had an episode on improv therapy, had a ex, a former student of mine, a current supervisee of mine, Britton Culver, come on the show and demonstrate improv therapy. That was fun. We did an episode on Elliot Roger. Actually, we did two episodes on Elliot Roger. Get a lot of emails about that. A lot of people interested in Elliot Roger. A lot of scary people interested in Elliot Roger. Did an episode on when therapists are attracted to their clients. Let's see, Seven Deadly Sins. We talked about pot etiquette. Again, had friend and colleague Joe Langford on the show to talk about how you could have etiquette regarding marijuana. Uh, let's see, 
Then we had the podcast party. Then I presented my study on seasoned psychotherapists' experience of difficult clinical moments. Um, then I had a, an episode in which a listener came on the show and talked about her experiences with homeschooling and compassionate communication. She asked me a bunch of questions. Then we had episodes on Robin Williams when he committed suicide. And that brings us basically up to the present. So, wow, we've had a lot of different sorts of episodes in the second 100 set of episodes. It's been, it's been an interesting ride. When I started reviewing the episodes, I thought, well, they're probably all going to be one-dimensional. But it seems like the podcast, we go in all sorts of random directions, honestly. It must be kind of weird to be a listener to this podcast because when you tune in, you never know what you're going to get, you know? Are you going to get me just rambling at you for a couple hours about some random topic? Or is it going to be a party? Or is it going to be, you know, a, a, a really um, <laughs> a sexually explicit conversation <laughs> about some, you know, thing like spanking fetishes or something? I don't know. It just seems like we kind of go all over the place. All right. Well, so again, I thank you all for listening. If you weren't out there, it would definitely not be as fun of a process. Again, I would probably still do it, but you definitely make it a lot more fun to do. I I get a lot of motivation when I know that you're actually out there listening. So let me know that you're out there if you can. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle, the 200th episode to be exact. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself. (music) 